Uh, don't forget that I love you, that I care for you. Don't forget what the gospel's done for you. Those are some great truths and things to meditate on, not just for the church at Thessalonica, but for you and I as well. Uh, it reminds us of the truth that you and I must care for the church of, of God. This is the, the body and the bride of Christ. We should absolutely love the church. I'm not talking about love going to church. We ought to do that, right? I mean, we're supposed to, right? And, and even if you don't, y'all are real good at faking it. That's what we do as Baptist folks. But we should love the entity of the church, right? This belongs to Jesus. The ones around you, no matter what they look like, act like, smell like, whether you like them and whether they're on your hit list or not, you are to love them because Christ loves them with an everlasting love. And He has built us and united us together by the Holy Spirit of God, by the Word of God, by the Gospel itself. And so the church is a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing. It is the... It is the most wonderful picture of Christ's love for us and Christ's work in us. And it is the way in which Christ is working in this world today through the local church and the global church as well as a global body. And as we come to this place, Paul has said in verse 17 and 18, he's like, look, I, I can't be with you right now physically and I hope to be soon. He says, but my heart is with you. I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you. He is sincere in these things. He talked about how in verse 18 that Satan himself is acting as a hindrance to get him there. We talked about the work of the devil in the life of the church and in the life of believers, how um, what he is always seeking to do is to divert us or divide us, distract us, and all these things to keep us hindered from doing the real work of God. We talked about last week how Satan doesn't mind so much that we gather, but he does care that we gather and truly worship the Lord or that we have real fellowship with one another, that we are growing in grace and knowledge. Uh, he does not mind a carnal believer. He does not mind someone who is wayward. He does not mind someone who is just apathetic or going through the motions or cold or indifferent. But the Lord isn't too keen on those things. And we shouldn't be either. We should remember what the gospel first did for you, for me. With the moment that you got saved, your life changed. Your eternity changed. And that changes how we live today. Now, as we come to this place here, verse 19 and 20, let's read it. Paul writes here, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Here Paul ends the chapter by describing his great joy that he has for the church and the work that God is doing in them, through them, and for them. Here we find that Paul is not just a, a missionary. He is not just an evangelist. He is not just a preacher. He is pastor, right? He is someone who truly cares for the flock of God. He is someone who truly cares for the people of God. This is what a pastor's heart should look like, sound like. This is what I want my heart to look like, sound like, act like. This is what one another should look like, act like, sound like. That we care for the people of God, that we see what God sees when He sees us. It is so easy for you and I to operate in the flesh because most of the time that's what we know. It's our initial response. Uh, here, what we see is that reacting to something is done in the flesh. When you react to something, it's instinct, right? Uh, it's just immediate. Uh, now, the way that we react, we react in the flesh. But the best way to react is to not react, it's to respond. When we respond, it takes a pause. Responding happens in the Spirit. Now, Paul here is going to be getting in, and he's talked about this much of this. When we see all these different things in our life, when we see the way that the church functions and operates, is that we should not be so reactionary, but we should be responding by the Spirit, through the Spirit, 
And what that does for us is it gives us a heart like Paul has for the church. Is it allows us to look even at those around us and we say that uh, the church is our very much, it's our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing. Right? This is something that brings us joy. It should be a joy to gather here on Sunday mornings. I love, uh, I've got several pastor friends that, I, that I, I, we text on Sunday mornings and, and we pray for one another, that sort of thing. And I, I love that because it keeps me in mind that there are other godly churches, other godly men, other churches that, that aren't going to look exactly like ours today, but they're going to preach the gospel, they're going to honor Christ, and the Lord will be magnified and glorified through it. And it reminds me that their church is just as much on my team as our church is on theirs. Right? We are a part of the same body, and this is a beautiful thing that, that Paul is dealing with here. He talks about the joy, the hope, the crown of rejoicing. Let's get into this now. Paul has a great hope, and this idea of hope, as we've talked about much in the New Testament, when hope is presented, it is not something of a, a hope so of some sort of Disney sort of wish upon a star or anything like that. This is a, a confidence. This is a, a surety, a steadfastness. This is something that you can, you can stand on, right? And so Paul has great hope or confidence in joining the church and that he will be able to confidently and joyfully see them presented one day to the Lord himself at his future appearing. Meaning this, Paul throughout the whole letter, as we talked about the very introduction of this letter, what's the theme of this letter so much of? He is encouraging this church and reminding them to keep what they've had from the beginning the same, right? To keep the main thing the main thing, right? To, to not major on the minors, right? Um, and, and what he's getting at is that Christ is coming. That's the message. That's the motivation, right? That is the way in which we are to live our life, that Christ is coming. Now, somewhere along the line, we've lost this in our day and age because we've heard it so much. We've gotten desensitized to the thought. Now, you and I, as we talk about, we see things happening all around the world. There's plenty of signs. As we talk about, we're not looking for signs. We're just listening for the sound of the trumpet. We're still listening for our Savior. We're still looking for Him. We're not looking around at the signs. When we do that, what happens is we get bogged down, discouraged, and more worried about bank accounts, food supplies, and all these things. We're trusting that Christ himself is going to call his church out of here. But until then, we have a job to do, to be united together, to be preaching the gospel as the church at Thessalonica was doing. Now, what they were doing is that they were a church that was literally having the whole world come through them, and they were sending out the gospel throughout the whole world by their testimony, by their walk, by their talk, and all these things. Now, as Morris writes here, at this point, Paul is almost lyrical in his expressions of esteem for his converts. Our hope shows his confidence in them. And he also calls them our joy and the crown in which we will glory. He comes back to glory and joy in the next verse. He cannot find words too strong for what he has to say. The crown of which he speaks is the word Stephanos, is the laurel wreath given to the victor at the games or the festive garland, rather than the diadema, which is the royal diadem, though the distinction must not be pressed, for Stephanos is sometimes used as a royal crown, in which we will glory, render uh, Caucasios, uh, sometimes translated as boasting. It, it means that the joy was expressed outwardly as well as felt inwardly. He is seeing this church, if you will, as victors at the Olympics, if you will. Right? During this time, the, the, there were uh, games, there were different things, different uh, competitions, right? Right now, the World Cup's going on. Any soccer fans? Okay, all right. <laughs> There's one more. All right. By the way, USA lost yesterday, all right? So at least pay attention to that. But we got hope for, for next go-around. Four more years. We're going to be here in the States. Home turf. We got this. 
Maybe. But anyways, so you think about these things, Olympics, right? We've got Winter Olympics, Summer Olympics. I'm waiting for Spring and Fall Olympics. I don't know. They'll have raking leaves competitions or I don't, I don't know what they'll do, right? They'll find something, right? Uh, we'll, we'll go for gold, all right? <laughs> we'll, we'll cut out that Husqvarna leaf blower and we'll, we'll blow away the competition. But anyways, here's what we'll do, right? We've got to look here. Think about these games that we see. We get to watch these on television, but for them, these games took place in different parts, especially in the capital cities and, and things, but everybody knew about them. And everybody that were in the games, you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to win. You know what everybody does today that does the Olympics? They want to win. Everybody that plays football, you know what they want to do? They want to win. Baseball, you name it, they want to win. And Paul even talks about this in other portions of Scripture. He says that they run to win. I run to win. Because that is what the goal, right? Now you talk about, well, we're already on the winning side. We've already won in Jesus. Certainly, but we want to be victors for Christ. We want to be right ambassadors for Him, to represent Him well. We think about this. Even if someone does not get gold, silver, or bronze in the Olympic Games, they ought to be pretty proud that they made it simply for the fact of this. They're representing their country. They're giving their all. They're going for gold, if you will. They're, they're going for the victor. And, and we should be doing the same and have the same sort of mindset. But Paul is looking at them and he says that you're, you're my crown of, of, of victory, if you will. He says that there is this uh, joy of receiving that crown, that stuff on us, uh, that is given to the victors here. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Right? He's, he's talking about you. Because he says in verse 20, then for ye are our glory and joy. He's saying, you're my crown. He says, when Christ returns, I can look and go, look, look what the Lord did at Thessalonica. Paul said, we can look at the, what the Lord did here and there and here and there. Right? The, the greatest thing about even any other pastor's ministry is not the pastor, it's the people. Right? It's that, it's that all of us would be rooted and built up in Christ and that we would, uh, one day when we see Him, that we would be not just worthy to be able to see Him, but that we would be found to be a glory and a joy. That we would find ourselves to be the victors. Now the joy and the glory is not even so much in the, the church itself. Certainly He cares for them, but specifically for what Christ has done in that church. Because it's Christ who saved those souls, who has ministered to them, who is growing them, who is using them. And so what we've got to find is that if we wish to be a glory and a joy, if you will, is that we have to keep Christ preeminent. Christ must be the focus. When he's not, I can tell you this, we're not running rightly. We're not uh, participating in the games, if you will, rightly. But we, we are cutting ourselves short and we're cutting the Lord short of what our Christian life and church should look like. So there is joy. In serving the Lord, there is joy in serving in the church. There is joy in looking to His coming. Now, the, the word translated as crown is in distinction to the diademos, which was the crown of royalty, and the stephanos was the wreath given to the victor in the Greek games. It was symbolic reward and recognition for having won the victory. Some have posited that this is the one of the crowns which will be rewarded at the bema. That may be so. However, the context would seem to point in another direction. The answer to Paul's uh, question here is as to his hope, joy, and crown of rejoicing was his beloved Thessalonian brethren in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. In other words, Sorensen writes, his hope, joy, and cause for rejoicing would be seeing these whom he had led to Christ at Jesus' coming. Clearly implied is the joy of the soul winner in seeing his fruit when Jesus returns. Without question, 
the matter of our Lord's return is in view. Moreover, clearly hinted at once again is the pre-tribulational rapture. If Paul's converts would be with Jesus when the dead in Christ certainly would be, excuse me, when he, when he returned, they of necessity had to be already in heaven. Though the dead in Christ certainly would be with him as noted in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. There is no indication that Paul assumed these all would die first. The church glorified and triumphant will return with Christ when he comes as noted in Revelation 19.14. What we see here is that Paul clearly is looking at a couple of things. He's looking at the doctrine of the church, what the church is supposed to look like. He's looking at soul winning and how each one of us to be a soul winner and how the church is to be the the ones who in this world are salt and light, uh, proclaiming the good news of Christ, uh, telling folks to come to Christ, come to Christ. We only have one message. Our message is come to Christ. That's it. That's what we've got today. It's the same as the prophets, if you will. It's the same as the, the apostles. It has come to Christ. That is all that we've got. And everything else certainly flows from the gospel and everything it is seen that, that every doctrine that we preach, everything that we stand on, it, it is gospel-saturated and must be so because that is our only hope, not just for now, but for, for heaven, for eternal things. Paul is also looking at the fact that Jesus is coming for his bride. He is coming for his church. He's going to call us out of here. There will be a literal day of wrath on this world and judgment, and that day is certainly coming. Now, I can tell you it's coming because the rapture hasn't happened yet. So the day of wrath is still yet to come. But then what else is to come? His second coming, which you'd see there in Revelation 19, where the church is triumphant and returning with our Lord. We've got to remember this. We are already victors, more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We're already seated in the heavenly places. So this means this great truth that when Christ returns, we are coming with him. When he comes back to this earth. Now, here's what happens. A lot of people get this mixed up and we'll address this as we keep going in 1 Thessalonians about the rapture. People think that the rapture is the second coming. It's not the second coming. The rapture is the rapture. That's the calling out, the snatching away of his people. You, you could maybe call it part one, if you will, but the, the second coming, even by the very definition, means that he has to come again. Now, you and I, we look around at Christmas stuff, and we're getting ready to celebrate and, and, and start Christmas series this morning. We're talking about his, his first coming, right? What does that mean? When he literally came here on this earth. The rapture, he's not going to touch down on the ground. Right? We're going to meet him in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord? That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us. But the second coming is where he literally will step foot on this earth. And then what happens? He ushers in the thousand-year reign, the millennial kingdom, where he will rule and reign, and where you and I get to be a part of his kingdom to as well rule and reign with him. And this is where we're going to get to have rewards. And our reward, much so, is not just that we get to be with him and rule and reign with him, but is that we have these jobs, responsibilities, and things to do for him, to glorify him forever and forever with Now, Paul is looking forward to that day. The early church was looking forward to that day. And the great motivation for Paul is that Christ, his Lord, is coming again. This is why Paul preaches so passionately. This is why he cares for the people, because certainly what could have happened in the first century and did happen soon thereafter as well, and what has happened today is that we have gotten lost in the mix of the world. We have gotten firmly too rooted and grounded in the world instead of in the things of the Lord, instead of the eternal things. And so what Paul is, is as well warning them is to keep the focus of Christ's return at hand. Keep the, the focus of hope and joy in this crown. That, to know this, that the finish line is coming, but we've got to get there first, right? And until then, we've got to keep running the race rightly. We're also reminded that Christ will make sure that he has a pure bride, 
a triumphant bride. This is much understanding as well when we get into dealing with the rapture and the second coming and everything. The second coming, it is going to be very much so a militarial triumph, right? When Christ returns, he's, he's not coming as this, you know, lowly babe wrapped swat and clothes lying in a manger. He's, he's coming as, as the God who is going to set up his kingdom and to rule, to overthrow darkness, to overthrow his enemy, just like that. And we get to be with him. We've got to understand that if the church is viewed much so in this sort of military stance and triumphant stance uh, later down the road, we must view it as the same today. You say, but we shouldn't be viewing ourselves as sort of military. Aren't we called soldiers for Christ? Aren't we told to, to live that life? Aren't we told about the spiritual warfare and to put on armor? Right? We're not talking about the Lord never tells us, make sure you put on the, the suit of the gospel or the, 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 the dress of, of the, the word. No. He says put on the armor because there is a battle. And there's a battle yet in play here. And there's a battle for our hearts and our minds to get us distracted at the return of Christ. And to get us distracted that the rapture is not just something that is coming in the future, but it's imminent. That idea means that it could happen any time today. We could maybe not even get through Sunday school. We could not get through this day. It might still be for another hundred years for all I know. Nevertheless, there is nothing else that has to happen for the rapture to happen. Just like that. Now, I want us to also be careful, though. Because there are some who would use that as a scare tactic, but yet to some degree, it should bring about a holy fear for our lives. To, to cause us to, like Paul tells the early church, to examine ourselves. Are we living for His coming? Are we living for His appearing? Are we living for the eternal things? Christ's coming is not just our motivation, but it is also our comfort. It is not just something that drives the way that we live and do church, but it is a comfort knowing that I'm not going to be here when there's tribulation, the great tribulation, that is, on this earth. Will we face tribulations? Yes. Paul also is the same Paul that tells uh, Timothy that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So we're never told that there won't be persecutions or tribulations, lowercase, but he says that he will keep us from the day of wrath, that Christ will call his church out of here. That is a comfort to know that. It is a comfort in the middle of our tribulations to know that the St. Paul tells us that this is just a momentary light affliction. And that, like he tells us in Romans 8.18, that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that should be revealed in us. When is that day? The day that we get to meet the Lord. Here, Green writes, the parousia of the Lord Jesus, this idea of the appearing, the, 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 the rapture, this, this idea of, of getting to be gathered up with him, right? It is a part of the royal theology of these letters and was a chief component of the hope of the church uh, as, uh, embraced as they faced opposition from their co uh, contemporaries. You see that chapter 1, verse 3 and 9. Although the purpose of mentioning the royal coming at this point is not to encourage the Thessalonians in their afflictions, it does help them to focus on the ultimate and glorious realities that will sustain them in the present time. Paul's main point is that their own ultimate joy and hope is bound up with the well-being of the Thessalonian church. Their absence from the Thessalonians should not be contrasted as a lack of care or even benign neglect. So what's Paul getting at here? He's saying not only is the fact that Christ is coming a motivation all these things, he's saying, but at the very end, my hope, my joy, 
my crown, if you will, is the very fact that you guys are steadfast, that you are preaching the gospel, that you are growing leaps and bounds, that, that you are what a church is supposed to look like. Were they perfect? No, because there's no perfect people. There's no perfect church, and we'll never find one here. We'll find it there. Praise the Lord for it. But nevertheless, Paul is expressing his deep care for them. You don't say these sorts of things to people unless you really mean it or unless you're a really good liar. He is showing his deep heart and affection for these people and showing them that at the end of the day when Christ returns, that they are his confident, that he's confident that they're going to be presented before the Lord and, and the Lord's going to be well done to the church at Thessalonica, to, to Paul for what God has done in them and through them for the salvations, for the growth, and that they are um, viewing and, and preparing their life for the, the coming of the Lord. That is what a life should look like. That is what the church should look like. And he gets into this and we see, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? What's the greatest part about Jesus coming? His presence. What's the greatest part of eternity? His presence. As we see, if we look at the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we find the presence of God. We find that the presence of God means much more when He is dwelling with His people. And notice that when His people aren't dwelling in the presence of God, things get bad, don't it? Right? When they're disobedient and the presence, or as uh, in the Old Testament it, de- it describes this during the time of where the, the, they're getting carried away and all these things out to, to other worlds into captivity, that it says that the glory departed in Ezekiel from the temple. What's that idea of glory? It's the very presence and power of God. Now, that's a frightening thing for them then. It should be a frightening thing for any church, the Thessalonians, ourselves, to think that the presence of God is there, but even more so to think that when God comes, when Christ calls us out of here, that we would not be able to be in His presence. That the greatest thing of eternity is not the, the reunion day, it's not the streets of gold, it's not the beauty of new heavens and new earth, it is the presence of God. That is the most beautiful thing. That is the most wonderful thing. The other things are just icing and cherries on top. But, but the very substance of His presence is what ties the whole of Scripture because what we find is in the beginning, God. What's that? It's a declaration of His presence. The self-existing, eternal God is speaking the world into existence. We find that the Lord comes to the garden to meet with Adam and Eve. There's His presence. And it says that they flee from His presence. They go, they run, they hide. Why? Because that's what sin causes us to do. And the rest of Scripture is to show us, and even much what we're celebrating now with Christmas time, is that God would put on flesh to then dwell amongst us His presence so that we could then come back into His presence. From Genesis to Revelation, what we find is that the goal of the cross, the goal of Scripture, the goal of human history is to bring sinful man back to the presence of God where we belong. Because we can't be in the presence of God when we are in sin, when we are in unholiness, unrighteousness. The presence of God is the key, not just to, to church life or to understanding the Bible, but to your very individual Christian life. To live in the presence of God. To seek the presence of God, to desire the presence of God. There should be nothing that we desire more than to walk with God. 
But Paul, as we finish up here, he gets into this in verse 20. He says, For ye are our glory and joy. Tagging along there in verse 19. Paul declares that the Thessalonians are his glory and joy. It's a sort of his crown of glory and joy. It is this victor's crown. He said, look at what they've done. Praise the Lord. Look at the work. Look at the care. He says, not only will they be this when Christ returns, they are so right now. Thus, he silences the insinuations about his lack of concern for his converts. If you remember throughout this chapter especially, he has had to show, I truly care for you. And the reason why we know that Paul cares for this church is, one, because they're, they're saved. He cares for saved people. He cares for Christ's church. He cares for Christ's body. He cares for them because he knows that when the Lord appears, that they will be found faithful, that they will be found as his glory, as his joy, as his crown, and that he sees them as this grand people that, that God has done a work in and through. Paul shows that there is no doubt about his relationship for the church and his great desire to not only be with them, but to be with them when Christ comes for his church. One day there will be no more separation, but we shall ever be with each other and the Lord. What Paul points to in this chapter is that I want to be with you, but nevertheless my heart is with you, and one day the Lord is going to call us out of here and we shall meet one another and be with him. In chapter 4, he's going to get into this, right? And we which are alive and remain shall be caught together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. There is comfort in knowing that the moment that the Lord calls us out of here, that you and I shall no longer have any separation. One of the hardest things for shut-ins today, you know what that is? Separation. They're separated from the body. They're separated from one another. They're separated from you and I. It should bother us when we're separated from church. The one who is able to disappear from church and from gathering with Christians and is okay with it, I'm very concerned for their heart's well-being. We should never be okay to disappear from church. We should never come out of obligation. We should come out of joyful obedience that we get to gather together. And the great hope and joy is that one day we shall all be gathered together. There are some people who have been in one church their entire life. How many of y'all have only been in Victory Way your entire life? A couple of you, right? Well, here's, here's something that I learned. I was a part of one church my entire life too. And then I went to Bible college, and there were several churches that I attended for different things. I went on Sundays here, helped out with the kids' ministry here. And what I discovered is that God's people are everywhere. He has a great remnant. And a large body of believers, though it does not seem that way. Just this year, I got to have the privilege to go up to Michigan, 10 hours away. You know what I found up there? Believers like us. You know what that does? This reminds me that though right now they don't have a clue who you are, you don't have a clue who they are, one day we shall be united together. And what a day that's going to be. Right now the church is still scattered. But when Christ calls us, it shall be gathered. And right now, every church service that we have, it is to gather us together to prepare us to then be scattered throughout the week. But one day we shall be scattered no more. We shall be gathered together, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is the goal of our church. 
That is the goal of the church. That is the goal of the Christian life. So as we wrap this up in this chapter this morning, may we just reflect in our hearts and see, are we living for that day? Do we love the church as Paul loved the church? Do we love the church like Christ loved the church? Do we love the church? And may today our hearts burn a little bit hotter and brighter for the church of God, the institution, the body of Christ, that God would be glorified in this place. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We're grateful that we can look at your word and we can see such passion and care and concern for the church that Paul has. And, and Lord, it leaves us without a doubt, Lord, that we should do the same. Lord, help us to care for your people, to care for your glory, to look for your appearing. And Lord, that we would live for the eternal things. Today, help us, O oh Lord, as we celebrate over the next few weeks the, the coming of Christ, that we would not just look at, at the things that took place in Bethlehem, but we would look at the cross. We would look at that empty tomb. We would look at his uh, soon uh, coming, Lord. We just thank you for this time and pray that you prepare our hearts, that we would worship you and glorify you in all that we say and do. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all, we'll take a pause for the cause.